everybody. This is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everybody for tuning in, and thank everybody that's been sharing the show with your friends and spreading the word. Um, it's helped a lot, and this show has been so fun for me, and it's really been like silver lining in this whole quarantine experience. Uh, learning from all my guests and hearing from all of you. Um, you guys can email me at krazplus1, that's K-R-A-Z plus one at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, it's at krazplus1. And uh, send me messages. It's been great to hear from everybody, getting your comments and suggestions on guests and whatnot. It's been really helpful for the show. So please continue to do that. And don't forget to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. Once again, we have playlists for every show. So go to Spotify. And when you click on the episode, the episode details will uh, reveal a playlist for, for every show. And I love putting together these playlists with the artists that I'm speaking with and uh, yeah it's songs that influence the artist or that we talk about on the show so if you use spotify definitely check out the playlists even though everybody is shut down and there's no touring going on there's a lot of music taking place right now a lot of people recording and a lot of people actually putting out music right now which is great i know in the beginning of quarantine people were afraid to put music out but it seems like there's now a constant flow of music that's being made during this time uh, one person that I'm a huge fan of is Tash Neal, and uh, he just put out a single called Like a Glove that's produced by Dan Auerbach, and uh, Tash is one of my favorite musicians. You might know him from the band of London Souls. Uh, so if you dig that kind of music, it's rock, it's soul, it's funky. He's just an incredible singer, songwriter, guitarist. Definitely follow Tash Neal and check out the new single. Also wanted to mention a few of my friends that have been on the show that have been nominated for Grammys this year. So shout out to Marcus King, who's nominated. Emily King, also nominated. And my guest today, G Love, who's been in the game almost 30 years, uh, got nominated for his first time this year. His latest album called The Juice was produced by Kev Moe you know, down in Nashville. And we get into that story uh, in the show today. And we also go back to his origins in Philly and uh, how he kind of found this sound that was combining traditional blues music, hip-hop music, roots music, and how he was influenced by a wide range of artists from Philly hip-hop legends all the way to Bob Dylan. So I'm excited to get into this conversation, but first we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. All right, he's a great harmonica player, guitarist, singer, songwriter, and recently Grammy nominated. I'd like to welcome today's plus one, my good friend G Love. In the last week since we texted, I've been going down memory lane a little bit and listening to some some of your tracks and actually listened to Weekend Dance and, oh, yeah. and Cheating Heart. Yeah, which oh, yes. uh, for those of you out there that don't know, it's just songs that that G and I worked on probably in like 2012 or 13, maybe. Yeah, yeah. the first one was Cheating Heart because like, so I came by. You had that spot in Brooklyn. Yep, yeah. Right, and I yep. came. It was so cool, man, because I came by that spot and um, you played one thing, which I was like, that's that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Another, but I was I I was like, well, what else you got? And then you put on. Um, a beat, this really weird beat that you and Deitch had done. Right. And uh, 
It was like a sample, some obscure shit, and it was just a dip, just a weird. Yeah, it was. It's like a three. Is it a three four? It, I don't know. It's a weird thing, but it's like a weird groove. And I was like, oh, this is the shit. It just sparked it in me, and then I just went outside and like. I was still smoking cigarettes then. Yeah. Just sitting outside the studios, smoking cigarettes with my phone, just writing all the verses. Yeah. And uh, I was going through a terrible uh, relationship at the time. So Cheating Heart came in and it was just about like, you know, coming down to New York, you know, trying yeah, to yeah. make this happen and not working out. <laughs> but yeah. then the other one was the weekend dance. The weekend dance. I think we did them like kind of in that same, I don't know if it was the same day, but it was definitely around the same time. Yeah, and then, you know, that was because, well, that kind of came out of, um, if you remember, we did the Jimi Hendrix uh, tribute. Oh, that's right. And we were like, we need to do something in that same vein. Right. right. So we had, so for, and and so you and Sola were the band for that. So I was one of the guests. Yeah. And we did this obscure track that was from this awesome Jimi Hendrix record, but it, he wasn't the singer. He it was I like think that King was with Curtis. Curtis Knight. Curtis, Curtis Knight. Knight. You know what's crazy is I'm reading his bio- biography right uh-huh. now, and I've been reading all about that that era. Curtis Knight was basically a pimp, <laughs> according oh, to the story, okay. and he kind of would hire Jimmy to play with him. And at the time in the in like the mid sixties or sixty six. Jimmy was living in New York and just trying to get gigs around town and he would do gigs with Curtis because he would pay him, you know what I mean? Because he had other means of money. And uh, he came back when he was like a superstar and he was still friends with Curtis and all those guys and all these people. uh, His manager was freaking out, like, don't do those sessions. But every Uh. night after his gigs, he would go hang out in the studio. And I don't know if that particular song was from a previous session or from the sessions yeah. when he came back but uh yeah there's all these there was all these recordings of him with curtis curtis knight against his manager's uh you know advice <laughs> man the, the, I, I i had that record like on vinyl and yeah. um and then i must have recorded it on a cassette but i don't even have a copy of it anymore but there's so there's really cool tunes on it one called strange things yeah. and then the, the one that we messed with was um was kind of like it was it was kind of based on on like a rolling, like rolling stone. stone yeah they did that on a few songs they had a few songs and he was like a major major dylan head hendrix you know a lot of people know that but he used to like style his hair all about dylan and was like at that time his first lsd experience supposedly was that year in 66 with this woman named linda keith who was Keith Richards' uh, girlfriend, who was living okay. in New York, Keith was obviously <laughs> pissed as fuck. At one point, supposedly she gave uh, one of his guitars to Jimmy, but she oh, like they ate acid in her flat and listened to Blonde on Blonde. And uh, supposedly after that, he like throughout the next few years had covered like all the songs from that record. Wow. And he was like obsessed, but I've been like going down this Hendrix rabbit hole. So um, yeah. it's cool that you that you brought that up. Yeah, I think it probably started. My fascination Hendrix with Hendrix started when I was a kid. But I remember doing that gig with you, and there was a bunch of other guests where we actually learned all these Hendrix tunes, and a lot of them were obscure because we had so many guests and so many. Right, and right, it was right. kind of funny because we were like, oh, everyone's gonna pick. Purple Haze and and All on the Watchtower or whatever, but everyone picked really, it made me realize how much music he had. And he'd only been recording for three years. He only had like a three Uh, to four year career, which is nuts. That's crazy. And then I forget the other tune we did, but um, 
back to the, the like a Rolling Stone one. So anyhow, so we yeah. so so we had that we had messed with that groove. Um, but the Curtis Knight version, and then um, and then we were like, oh, we should make a beat over that. So then you yeah. put the beat together, kind of using those um, changes, and then um, and then Shamar Allen sent me his record, and he because I was going to guest on his record. Rob from Galactic linked Shamar and I up, right? And um, and so Shamar sent up this tune called Weekend Dance, and at first I was like, Weekend Dance, I was like. It was one of those things you were like, what is that? And then it was so sticky that I kept saying it. And then I was like, oh, this is a fucking hit, man. Yeah. So then I was like, fuck that. I'm going to make my own version over our beat. Yeah. So that's when I took the beat that you sent me and I started singing that over. So that was cool. It came full circle and I made a record. So, you know, I don't know if you even remember, but I met you in like the 90s originally. I think I, I can't I think at Hampshire College, actually, you had played a oh, show sure. in Northampton. And I was going to school there. Anyway, I remember hearing you and then, like, kind of from that, you know, digging into... I knew, like, B.B. King and a lot of these, like, guitar dudes, but um, I feel like you were kind of like uh, a portal... For me, I mean, first off, I just loved your songs and what you were doing, but then understood like that you were combining obviously like hip hop and like blues cats like Lightning Hopkins um, and Willie Dixon and like people that I eventually found and kind of, you know, started to dig into all of that world. And I'm curious, what was your initiation into like learning about the blues? Did somebody bring you a record or like what was the what was that spark of inspiration yeah i had got a harmonica rack you know uh so i had played guitar since since i was eight and then i'd taken lessons basically just learning how to basically sing and play a lot of beatles tunes seems like i had three different teachers and they all taught a lot of beatles tunes so um but like basically like your acoustic your typical like acoustic rock set or your acoustic folk set. One of the teachers had a little bit honky tonk band that had a harmonica player in it. And I I saw the harp when I was, you know, I was 14 or 15. And I thought the harmonica was like the coolest thing. So we took one harmonica lesson. Uh, my manager, J- who who is my best friend, Jason Brown, uh, he and I took one harmonica lesson and uh, we kind of learned the basics. And then I got a rack. Yeah. And then I was really into Bob Dylan to begin with so and this is like the 80s you know the 86 or something so and then if you think about the musical atmosphere hip-hop is just getting major mainstream culture and then also like the indie rock thing like the cure and stuff like that are like really happening and um but bob like the crunchy stuff wasn't really happening unless some people were into the dead you know i mean but no one was into bob dylan man so i was pretty original so i started writing songs but then I, I went to the coffee shop and I was to play at an open mic. And and then I got there and I started playing some of my songs, which were really like Dylan-esque, you know what I mean? Yeah. And like based on Dylan's writing and the Beatles writing and maybe some Lou Reed. Everybody else that was writing song, songwriters, right, were like also inspired by Dylan. Right. And there was a couple of people playing a harmonica doing the Dylan thing. And I was like, oh, fuck, man. There's somebody, <laughs> other people know who Bob Dylan is, you know. So I went to this 
really cool record store in Philly called Third Street Jazz and Rock. And downstairs they had all the used vinyls. And um, and I was like, is there anybody you can recommend that a solo acoustic guitar and plays harmonica on a rack? And he said, yeah, hand me his John Hammond record, which was John Hammond, country, and it was called Country Blues. Yeah. It was like a 1963 Vanguard release. And on it, he covered like the first side A, first track was like State Sparrow Blues. A lot of people know the Allman Brothers version of Statesboro Blues. That's that's not like that's really different than the original right. Delta version. Yeah, I always knew the Taj Mahal, you know, version. Yeah, and then the yeah. Taj Mahal version. Yeah. Um, but anyhow, so then just from that first note of hearing John Hammond, his approach to the Delta Blues, that sent me on a journey back to find like Robert Johnson, Lightning Hopkins, Book of White, you know. And then uh, Mississippi Fred McDowell, Mississippi John Hurt, right. and all just the endless like rabbit hole. You know what I mean? So that was like the thing. Yeah. And at that time, what were the hip hop influences for you? My buddy Chuck Treese and I were just on this little social distance duo tour down yeah. to Florida and back, and we came up with this song we started playing every night called "The Philly Sound," and the first line goes, "1986 Friday night." Street Beat on Power 99 FM with Lady B. So every Friday night, it was special programming on urban radio, which was mostly playing R&B then, right? Right, right. But they had Friday night was for hip hop. So we, you'd have your cassette and it would be the first time you heard Steady B and DJ Tap Money from the Hilltop. And the first time you heard DJ Jazzy Jeff, the Fresh Prince, first time you heard Terminator X, Public Enemy, and Boogie Down Productions, and you know all these different voices that and Eric B and Rakim, and it was, and then you you knew like LL Cool J, and you knew Run DMC, and you knew the Beastie Boys, cool, like and all, all the Philly hip hop, right. Cool C, DJ Cash Money, and Mar and Marv, Marvelous Marv, and um, so there, there was a lot of stuff happening that you hear on, on that radio show. So that was, and then the other part of the hip hop culture in the late eighties in Philadelphia and New York too is like the graffiti writers, which is really like a golden age of especially tagging and and right. but PC too in Philly. It's so like all these writers like Catism and you know Steve Powers who was Espo who's now like a famous street artist right. and like a lot of guys that well some guys went on to be fine artists and like this guy Barnaby Furnace. He's like a huge fine artist in New York, but he he used to write Sear. Yeah, so it was it was prequels. Cool. So as a kid growing up in the city, like it was like basketball, learned about hip hop at basketball league, and then everybody got into skateboarding, and then everybody got into graffiti writing, and then everybody got into music. Right, right. So what what, what was your first tag? Did you have it? I know now I see, it's funny because I see G-Love <laughs> all over the world, honestly. And every once in a while, I'll send you a picture like, yo, yeah. uh, you know, backstage. I'm backstage over here. <laughs> but what was your, what was your first tag? Uh, look, okay. L-O-O-K. 
a kid came. I went to school called Germantown Friends School, which was in Germantown. Um, and I, so I've, this kid came in eighth grade. He grew up in West Philly, and he, he was a graffiti writer. So he turned us on to like graffiti writing. So he was like, you got to make a name. All right, I don't know. I just chose look. And he's like, oh, that'll flow good. So then he he wrote down a lot of different ways to write it. And then I would just practice the tag like over and over and over and over and over and over. <laughs> and I was terrible, but like I got a pretty, after years and years and years and years of doing it, I got a pretty good hand now, but not for like piecing, but you know, my tagging hand's pretty good, I think. Did, did you have a tag? Did you have a tag? Um, E-Kraz. Well, it was Kraz e and then E-Kraz because when I was a little kid, I was little Kraz, but I hated that because my brother was five years older. You grew up in a, in New York, right? No, I well in Connecticut, so like in the suburbs, in the suburbs. But I, you know, I would go in and out of the city eventually when my dad and when my parents split. But yeah, mostly. But I mean, you know, that was a funny thing is that in those that was like when hip hop was ev like st like kind of spread to everywhere. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. It's like my first records I bought myself was like Beastie Boys, Run DMC. But I was also really into like, you know, rock music, classic rock, Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And, and shit like that. Which it's funny because then you realize that all of those songs, you know, like just like you said, you know, with John Hammond covering these old songs. Sometimes I didn't know that Led Zeppelin riffs were actually these old blues you know, traditional songs. Um, right. I mean, and, and honestly, the first time I really probably heard Led Zeppelin and liked it was on She's Crafty by the Beastie Boys. Right, right. And that so that's the interesting thing was that I yeah. realized through the Beastie Boys that those riffs and those John Bonham drums yeah. were, were Led Zeppelin. And that kind of blew my right. mind because my brother was into Led Zeppelin and then my dad had like Rolling Stones and stuff like that. So there was like... This interesting, and then but then when I found the BC Boys, like oh, I was like that's mine, you know what I mean? Right, like that's right, like right. my era. That's yeah. and that's why I loved that so much because it had elements of things that were I was that I recognized. Um, but it was interesting, like the full circle of that. Hey, look, speaking of um, Led Zeppelin and acoustic music, this is just kind of a little funny thing. But I'll start off by saying I'm a huge Led Zeppelin fan. Okay, yeah, right, but yeah. like when you go to like acoustic jams when you know especially back in the day like that would be the thing that like guys would always play the riff to show that they could really play you know it's funny that's the first thing i really learned on guitar it was over the hills and far away and that was always a joke at my house because i'd play it so much that my dad would joke why don't you do that over the hills and far away <laughs> so it, it would like it became such a thing that like i was like damn everybody pulls that one out like the shit so i, I never learned how to play it <laughs> yeah yeah so so did you uh, learn harmonica first and then guitar not right? learn guitar first or guitar first but then you got then, in harmonica yeah and then and then you start. So when you were doing these coffee houses and stuff, where you you said you were playing Dylan songs, when was? Do you remember the first like original song that you wrote? I feel I feel really lucky in a sense that, that when we grew up, um, and how that's affected our music. And the reason I say that is because like when we grew up, there was no YouTube and there was no avenue 
to think that you would ever really realistically become a professional musician, let alone like a rock star or something like that. Right, right. Because it was a million miles away. Like even for you, maybe you were in Connecticut, close to New York. I was in Philly, close to New York. But, you know, in the 80s, there was MTV and there was big, huge records and big, huge hits. And if you had your ear open, you know, like we did to the hip hop stuff or other kids had to like punk rock or other kind of, kind of um, emerging, you know, kind of like cultural music that was like on the fringe that was kind of accessible. You could find about that. But as far as like mainstream success, there there was no avenue to that. So the reason I bring it up is because the songwriting, I think, especially you know, for me personally, was like really pure. It came from a pure place, right? It wasn't, it wasn't about like, I want to write songs because I want to post them on YouTube. Like if right. a kid today is growing up, they can see and read about like, oh, you know, Taylor Swift writes her own songs or, uh, you know, Justin Bieber got huge off of YouTube. There is no way to like become huge as a 13 year old or a 15 year old kid. If you if you somehow had a voice inside you that need to come out to make songs, I guess. I don't know why that happened, but that happened to me. I started yeah. writing songs. I, I did have this urge the minute I write them was to record them on my boombox right, right and i wanted to perform them like a lot of my writing i'll deal like if i'm writing a song it's not just necessarily about one person it, it could be a it could have a principal character in it but that character could be multiple people so um that first song i wrote was same thing it was uh it's kind of funny to talk about but like it was about my man my manager jay who i brought up earlier right uh, um you know we were best friends and he got busted at school i think for selling weed so he didn't get expelled but they kind of like encouraged his parents to send him to boarding school which they did wow. <laughs> so he, he said to like boarding school in vermont and uh, i was so my best friend was leaving so i wrote this song about you know being bummed that my friend was leaving and then also i was like had fallen in love with this girl and so i wrote it about the two of them so but it was just kind of a knee-jerk reaction to life the songwriting I was doing then. And um, it's cool because a lot of those tunes have ended up making it onto records and stuff over the year, which is which is pretty cool. So I, I, I always, the last thing I'll say is, I always think, like if you have kids or, you know, kids do some pretty profound stuff when yeah. they're teens. And um, so, you know, you can't discount if a 15 year old's writing or a 13 year old, actually this kid that I was writing with on during this COVID shit, um, 13 year old from Philly yeah. named Noah Gibney. He's like, we wrote some great songs together. It's like, you can't discount these kids just cause they're age. Cause they actually have a lot of profound and kind of pure stuff going through their head. Right. But you know, our generation is, is unique in that because because we escaped the internet growing up and like all the screen time and shit, unless you had like Nintendo or Atari, you basically like were forced to practice your instrument or write songs or, and for, from a pure place. Totally. I mean, I think what brought me 
to music was that it was like created this little world that I could live in and not want, I didn't need to be around other people. You know what I mean? I right, could sit yeah. in my room playing guitar with records and like time would melt. I'd just be yeah. like, it'd be like the next day. Now I feel, even me, I I feel the need now to like always be checking my phone and checking things. Yeah. I have to actually make myself shut off yeah. to be creative sometimes. You know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, I think it's a double-edged I think there's also, there's pluses, like, you see kids like Taz, a little guitar player. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I know he's like, he, you know, he comes up with YouTube and can look up anything. I mean, I don't know if specifically he does this, right, okay. but, but, you right. know, like, kids can look up anything and, and yeah. learn it. But I think, for, to your point, um, writing and creating something that's really uh, original uh, requires some solitude. You know what I mean? It requires yeah, you to like, you yeah. know, like be, yeah. be in your own world a little bit and, and create something, which leads me to asking you, um, when did you start melding the hip hop and the blues together? Like when did you start kind of rapping, um, along with like your playing in that kind of blues style? Yeah. So actually it goes right to your last point because, because we didn't have YouTube, right? right? Because now if you want to learn how to play Robert Johnson, all you have to do is type in like how to play, you know, right. uh, Hellhound on my trail. And you can right. learn exactly how to play it in like yeah. two seconds. But, you know, when I was buying all these records and then trying to figure out how to play Hellhound on my trail or whatever, I didn't know that he's not playing in standard tuning. I tr I couldn't I couldn't figure out this. I was trying to make up all these weird chords to try to figure out how to play these tunes. Well, then I'd make up these weird chords or I'd be learning this blues song and I'd be like, oh, that's cool. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then I'd start to like... I was learning the Muddy Water song. Like, you know, I'm, you know I've been crazy. Well, I've been a fool. I've yeah. been crazy. So then I, so then I took that riff and then I, I put, I made it for this song, Garbage Man. I'm your garbage man. I would take a, a riff, and the thing about it was that I wasn't playing it properly, anyhow. Right. <laughs> so it was really, so it was really mine. Even though I was trying to play it properly, I wasn't. So it became my own thing. And then, and then, and then I would basically like, like a hip hop producer would sample a track. So I would kind of look at it like that, like I was going to loop up this thing. And then when I met Jim and Jeff, my band, um we were really like proud of the fact that like we we didn't loop anything and it was all live although the way we approached the writing of the songs and playing as a unit was to try to to try to play something in a static way um and to so a, a lot of our tunes are, could could well be loops right because right um, the the bass line static and the guitar line static and the drum pattern static. Of course, we're putting some fills in and stuff, but like yeah. that was kind of the concept. You know what I mean? So you, I would, what's cool about that is you were kind of flipping it back on itself because you were influenced by the fact that these records were sampled, but then you were playing it back. Yeah, uh, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and what makes it interesting is that inevitably, you know, live it's going to have more more feel or, or you know, it's going to have like this movement to it. Yeah, And I yeah. think that's something that's really unique about Special Sauce is that it's like this hip-hop vibe and this loop vibe, but then it kind of moves, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, And with your vocal on top, I feel like it, it was like this really special combination, obviously. What's interesting about your songwriting, too, is that you will write from the perspective of someone else or like create these worlds and these little stories, which I think is interesting because you hear a lot of a lot of songwriters always talking about their own experience. I'm like this, I do that, I did that. Um, and you said obviously you cited Dylan as one of your inspirations, but there are there other like songwriters or lyric writers that inspired you? Definitely Dr. John. I love Dr. John's writing because like he you know, obviously that's kind of the first taste of some New Orleans funk that I got was his the record, the right the right time yeah that record really inspired me a lot because it's got a lot of tongue-in-cheek stuff to it like in the song such a night you came here with my best friend jim yeah here yeah. i am trying to steal you away from him yeah like that kind of stuff and then um you know in right in the right place like i just need some brain salad surgery like what is that what's brain salad right. surgery well i know it is now but i'm um i didn't know what it was then you know, so just I got into the vibe of like trying to use makeup words or just put in interesting words kind of through listening to Dr. John and then the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed, um, you know, his writing also like really had a pretty big profound effect on me, especially that record uh, Velvet Underground, like the self-titled yeah, yeah. Velvet Underground record that was like a big record for me. And then Dylan, and then you know the hit on the hip hop side, Rakim, Guru, um, KRS One, uh, De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest, uh, Cypress Hill, the Far Side. The interesting thing about hip hop is that it's it's and it's always been really conscious. Like, I mean, if you listen, obviously KRS One and Rakim, all their lyrical content was like very like political and conscious, and even like religious and and so if they were kind of the blueprint for it once i started kind of you know kind of drifting into like going from like beatles style songwriting into like hip-hop songwriting and and using and using a, a cadence and a, and based on a lot of the hip-hop that i was a fan of like i just mentioned like that was um more words to really try to find different interesting words a lot of uh trying to get a lot of imagery of the city yeah. of philadelphia and um a lot of the experience of just just people you know homeless people um basketball players graffiti writers bike couriers right um all those things going on in the inner, inner cities on the east coast that this was like really a lot of imagery so th that was like the the hip-hop once I found that way to add that to my songwriting voice, that was pretty cool. And um, and again, like one of the last thing I'll say is that Rakim, he he doesn't really have any funny songs. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. He doesn't have any funny songs. Like most other artists, like even KRS-One, 
It would get a serious guy. Yeah. He has some funny songs like Jim Browski. Yeah. Certainly like the far side, the first record was so off off the wall that their second all their records after that were like they kind of like went back inside because they I don't know. They were like kids having fun and then they then they everything got serious. It's just like anybody else. Same thing yeah. with De La Soul, like the first record is like so fun. So like I've always and Bob Dylan too. If you think about the record, the freewheeling Bob Dylan, yeah. right? It's got some of the most poignant political protest songs ever written and recorded. Yeah. And also has songs that make you laugh. Like, um, you know, same thing with Robert Johnson, John Lee Hooker. Everybody has, you know, the, the yin and the yang, or like the, some really serious or like heavy tunes and also some really lighthearted tunes. Like right. Robert Johnson, for instance, you've got like, you know, hot tamales. But then you have like Hellhound on my trail. We'll be right back after this short break. Tell me about meeting Houseman and uh, Jimmy Jazz. I kind of met like two more quirky characters. Like, you know, this is why like one of my um, sayings is like always take the gig because I was at my part time job. I was like a street musician and I played some little clubs in Boston, but just kind of getting it going. And, um, you know, I got the call from a street musician of mine who's now goes by Reverend Freak Child. His name is Fordham Murdy. Yeah. Who, funnily enough, his sister was dating Mike Dowdy from Soul Coffee at the time, like right when they were getting their start. Um, but he was a street musician, and so was I. And we met in Boston because I stole, I acted like I didn't hear him playing and set up right down the way from him at the Park Street T stop with my amp. Right, right. And he came over and said, Oh, you didn't hear me playing? I was like, Oh, because he didn't have an amp. So I act, Oh, no, so I didn't hear you playing. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, that's cool. It's like a spot. Uh, but yeah, you lug all your shit down there. You're like, ah, oh, this motherfucker's in a spot. And yeah. He don't even have an amp. Fuck yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we became friends. And um, yeah, he called me and said, hey, the opening act canceled. Can you come play? So I went down. It was Sunday night. The bar was called the Tam O'Shanter in Brookline, Massachusetts. Sunny, Sunday, rainy night. So I played for. The band I was opening up for, the bartender, the sound guy, the owner of the club, the cocktail waitress, and one weird guy at the bar yeah. who was the houseman who was looking for through the help wanted because he was really struggling as a working drummer. Yeah. So after the gig, he came up to me and, um, you know, I got up there, played my heart out and finished playing. He came up and he's like, Hey, good. That was really cool. And I was like, hey, thanks, man. You know, kind of walked off. Like, there's no one, there's nowhere to go. And then he goes, hey, I'm a drummer. And I go, oh, really? <laughs> so we talked for like a couple of hours. I missed the last tee. And then, uh, so we started playing as a duo um, that next week because he had a name around town. So he goes, we'll go to the Middle East, go to here, TT and the Bears, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And just say you're playing with, you know, he went by Thunderhouse at the time. Tell you, tell you, playing with Thunderhouse, and then that got us some first gigs. Jeff ran a jazz jam, so he ran a jazz night Monday nights at the Tam O'Shanter, 
Well, it was a pretty popular jazz jam. A lot of heavy cats would play there in Boston. Yeah. And you know, like the talent in Boston's unbelievable. And um the unique thing about his jazz jam was that he only would allow upright players, right? Right. right. So no like guitar, bass guitar. Right, electric, yeah. So Jimmy Jazz came down, he was like a rock and roll guy. He had shaved the frets off his fender bass. He brought that down and he Jeff wouldn't let him play. <laughs> right, right. So then he came back like a month later with he had got this K bass. Yeah. He came back with that. We tried out a bunch of bass players. We even tried out a trombone. No, a tuba bass. Yeah. Most of the jazz guys were so sophisticated that what I was doing was kind of not really um, so interesting to them, or they just didn't quite get it. Right. So Jimmy Jazz was perfect fit, and then you know, and then once we had that trio, it just really started hitting in Boston. Like, like it just it just connected. It was really cool. Do you remember like what was the moment that kind of shifted with the band when you kind of realized, okay, well, this is going to be something bigger than this, you know? Yeah. Well, it because so like I had gone to Skidmore College for a year and um, I, you know, I was kind of on the path to my parents were hoping that I would go back to college. Right. I, I was kind of full on trying to follow my music. So I said, look, I'm going to take a year off to pursue my music. And that's when I moved to Boston. So that summer of 92, I was a street musician. But by the summer of 93, I had met my band and we were like rising quickly to the top of like the local music scene. Yeah. And we were going from, you know, getting like a Monday night opener at TT and the Bears to like the Friday night opener at, you know, uh, Club Avalon. Yeah. Our, and um, and then our residency was at the Plow and Stars in Cambridge, which was, a you know, held about 125 people probably. And, you know, the first time we played, there was the regulars. And within a couple of months, there'd be a huge line down the block. And it was just a free sh free night, and it was our Monday night, so that was blowing up. And like, so by the summer of '93, and you could just shit was just like it was just on. Right, so I was right. I had I had applied to BU and got accepted, but I told my parents I'm not yeah. I'm not going to be able to go be going to college. And then that fall we and then the fall of '93 we signed a record deal with Epic Records. So from nine months after we met the band, we signed with Epic Records. Wow crazy that is crazy and it's such a different time because now i don't know i'm just trying to imagine that happening now i mean you see people rise up but it's like do you think that um i mean it was just without without you think that the having that record deal um was crucial to the rise of the band yeah i mean for sure like because you know we got they pushed the trigger on us like pretty good Right. Um, and the first record was super unique. It was timely. Like it, so that same year, like the roots were in Philly. First time I met like Black Thought, you know, Tariq, he was sitting in the lobby at Studio Four. And yeah. this is Studio Four was like a scene. So Rough House Records was, it was like a whole basement of this building, 333 North Third Street. Rough House Records was there. Rough Music Publishing was there. You know, Cypress Hill did their record there. Chris Cross did it. The Fugees did a record there. The Goats, 
did yeah. this record um and schoolie d was making a comeback so he was around and the roots were like coming up and trying to get a deal but roughhouse records like was like not giving them a deal so we were recording with dave johnson at studio four and uh the, some of the roots guys were like hanging in the, in the um lounge or the lobby lounge and and i was like already a huge fan of like the roots because because we had played a show with them our first show back to philly was at revival you know for the philadelphia music conference it was us and the roots right right i was like oh you know Tariq, and he wouldn't even shake my hand like <laughs> he was like i'll never forget that but you know since then we're, we're we're good friends and 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 um and he's a really sweet guy and obviously super amazing talent it's been amazing to watch those guys career but you know, back in the day, it was like super competitive and hip hop was our super cultural thing. And here's like three white guys like playing instruments coming down from Boston, even though I'm from Philly. Right, right. It's rapping. What are they doing? So there was a little bit of pushback in some aspects of the hip hop community um, that was a little daunting at times. But uh, there's also a lot of support, you know, but there was, it was Studio Four is crazy. The other kid who was hanging around then was Andy Kravitz was a crazy drummer. And he was hanging out with this young kid named Scott Storch. Oh, yeah. Who, yeah. who, uh, who ended up joining the Roots. But Scott's first record that he played on was, was on our first record. He plays the piano on This Ain't Living. Oh, shit. Okay. I didn't even know that. So it's crazy. Like, um, I think I met you at the Roots Jam. Well, I know. Well, we met back in the day at Hampshire College, but I think the first time, maybe the first time we played together, uh, and I don't, or, or like on a music in a music kind of setting, was one of those one of those the Roots sessions at um, with Big and Big Al was there. Oh yeah! yeah. Oh, at at at, the, at Larry Gold at studio. Larry Gold Studios. Yeah, that was a really cool, interesting thing. Like, so. I think back to that because that was so the roots like it was so cool because they, they just the things that they kind of sparked in a Philadelphia music in the 90s was unbelievable. And there was this club called the Five Spot and they had this night called Black Lily. Yeah, I, I came to um, that a few times. I mean, the musicianship and the singers, oh man, unbelievable. And um, and then later that transformed into kind of the vibe at Larry Gold's studio, yep. and then um, the, where they had a room, and then that's first time I met James Poyser, who also had a room. Yep. He was like the sweetest guy, and then that ultimately kind of led to them getting the Tonight Show, probably. But like, it also led to like this whole like underswell of like MCs and singers and musicians in Philadelphia, like coming up together. Quest was actually on the show, and we talk about that quite a bit. Uh, that was inspiring for us as soul live, you know, which, you know, we ended up doing things like bowl live and, you know, becoming a house band in a certain sense in Brooklyn for, for Brooklyn bowl and stuff. And I mean, we definitely did our own thing with it, but it, it was definitely an inspiration to see what they did. And then that ended up just letting all these people like Jill Scott and Jaguar Wright and Bilal and everybody having these great bands and oh, yeah. they were all out of Philly. So it was, it was cool. So they had this one set. They had an idea that they were just going to have an open studio yeah, and kind of loosely invite people down to jam. And they were recording the whole thing. 
because they're trying to get snippets of stuff to write a record to. Right. So basically when you walked in the studio, you're coming in with the mindset like, I'm going to drop some shit that hopefully the Roots are going to play, put on their record. Right. Right. So my mindset was like, I came in one night and I had like a couple things that I was thinking about, like, well, this is a cool song I have. This would be so cool if the Roots did like something with this. But right. nothing nothing that I played stuck stuck for them that night. But I, I guess, I don't know. So 94, the album comes out, self-titled G-Love and Special Sauce. Uh, Baby's Got Sauce. I remember hearing that all over the place at that time. Cole Beverage, obviously, becoming a staple. Did you guys see like huge success right away or was it kind of a slow build after the record came out we saw huge success except we didn't know it because we we're just like in a van playing like literally like 250 shows a year for those first probably couple years yeah three or four years the energy was unbelievable we kind of rushed in to make a second record and kind of coming back to like the ups and downs of kind of acceptance and um, vibes in the hip hop community. We played a lot of shows with, with hip hop bands. Like we played with everybody that first year. Like we played with, we went on tour of Tribe Called Quest. I did a show with KRS-One. We, uh, we played, we opened for Jazzmatazz, Guru's Project. Yeah. Um, you know, Run DMC, a lot of people, a lot and a lot of uh, Cypress Hill, a lot of up and coming people. It was frustrating because our sound was kind of fragile in a way because of just being a trio and uh, not a power trio. You know, I mean, right. it's kind of like a, a finesse, like acoustic, spacious thing. And uh, to go on right before or after a, a, a hip hop act, which at that time, was probably just a dat, not even turned to it, was just a dat and MCs just like hyping the crowd. It was just like, we were over it, man. And so the second record, we we just were like, let's go to New Orleans and make a kind of blues record, which is what we did. I mean, looking back, it was a terrible mistake. We should have like, the, we just didn't know how big of a success our first record was. Right, right. To us, we were just ready to move on, you know what I mean? Yeah. Which we did. Because I remember like Michael Kaplan, our A&R guy being like, Alicia, he, Muhammad wants to do a record with you. Right. And, but we didn't want to, we just wanted to play blues at that point. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, so this is like looking back, like, this is a bad mistake not following the blueprint from the first record. But long story short, is we were having success. We just didn't know it. And we didn't really know it till we put the second record out and um, it just didn't do as well commercially. And then that energy, that was there the first couple of years was kind of dissipating. And then you're like, oh, what happened? A lot of artists go through that. I mean, I remember with Soul Live, it's interesting that you say sometimes you don't know it. It's like we had Blue Note and we had like Capitol Records behind us majorly, especially overseas. Mm. And like later in the later years, we look back at that and it's like, man, having that support and right. having that radio and like being able to do all that promotion. Yeah. It really was more valuable than we knew, you know, because oh, also yeah. we were new to it. So we we're like, oh, this is what you do. Right. Um, and then years down the line, you're like, oh, man, like that made it a lot easier. You know, it made it easier yeah. to pack clubs and get press and do all yeah. these different things. And um, 
Uh, so yeah, it's interesting that you say you sometimes you don't know what's <laughs> how good it is, you know, or like yeah, you, you're just doing it. You're like, oh, we got to go do this TV show now. We got to go yeah. do this interview now. Fuck, we got to go do this. We got to go do that. This sucks. Right. Fuck the record label. Right. Right. I'm not playing this song again. Yeah. I don't yeah. feel like playing a single right now. It's it's funny as you get older, you're kind of like, oh man, you know, like a lot of those things are are pretty valuable. Can you list five things you passed on that you that you were like, if it came back up, you do it again easily. easily. Let's hear. It. I mean, well, there was one like big Australia tour with a big artist over there that we passed on because we just like were we were like not wanting to go overseas at the time. We had just been. Uh, traveling and we wanted to just work on this record that we were working on at the time yeah uh and that would have been big for us because we 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 ended up bailing on like a big festival there um and a lot of relationships got messed up by that decision also in certain cases it was like not really valuing what was there you know what i mean like for example that like there was a lot of times where soul live we just wanted to like do other things. You know how like the grass is always greener. It's like we wanted to make like R&B and like pop records when really people wanted to hear us do what made us unique, which was like this organ trio thing. You know what I right, mean? Right, 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 so, right. you know, it's I don't really have major regrets, but I understand that bad decisions were made by me over the years you know what i mean you got us some more yeah there was times where i didn't want to wait around for people there was a whole thing where i was supposed to do these sessions with dr dre like back in the day and oh, i shit. ended up like <laughs> i ended up but the deal was like kind of weird and it was uh working with his team and like as a kind of an understudy as a producer you know what i mean wow and i had just deitch and i had just produced a record for 50 cent and we, oh, had, shit. Some, no we had some like things going on sometimes you know you you think that you can we we were like oh we just did this song for 50 cent we could probably do anybody now he was like a huge artist but you know it would have probably been really really valuable for me to be an understudy under e even if it was under him or under his under people because what happened was i realized oh it's not even really under him it's like under his people but eventually right. you get to there and then you get to him and then you because so learning from the people that have a lot of success is really valuable and sometimes you got to put your ego on the side um and just be like i it's time to learn you know what i mean yeah, i think yeah. in my older years i i've yeah. realized that more that like you know it's like patience is so huge because it's like you sometimes you think like, oh, I've been in this game for so long, but and, and I, I deserve to just be there now. It's not how it works. And I think appreciating the process is a huge yeah. thing and not rushing it. You know what I yeah. mean? And and that's like worked out well for me because the things that happen fast and quick and give you a lot of money right away, a lot of times don't have long-term value. You know what I mean? So uh, I think there's times where I could have like, taken the path of like all right let me learn from this person and just like take a back seat and and see what happens right. rather than be like okay i just want to go right into this thing yeah. i'm ready yeah. you know yeah, yeah, yeah let me give you some funny ones that yeah. i passed on okay 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 one one was um the black crows offered us their u.s tour one summer and they were you know at a huge peak in their career yeah in the or mid 90s 
and we didn't want to open up for anybody because right. I was like, I'm G Love. I'm not opening up for nobody, motherfucker. Right. Okay. Right. So it passed that. So that's a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So then another one was um, Philip Morris wanted to use cold beverage in some commercial in Eastern Europe. And I said, sure, we'll do it for a million dollars. Fuck you. Because yeah. I didn't, well, didn't want to do something for Philip Morris. Well, I don't yeah. know how much it was for, but they never heard lot. back. They yeah. weren't going to give us a million dollars. Right, right. The other, and then another one was we were going to be the house band in Eddie Murphy's Dr. Doolittle 2. For some reason, I didn't think that was cool. Right, right. So we passed on that. Okay. Another one we passed on was TGF Friday's using baby's got sauce for the baby back ribs commercial oh. in the uk only okay okay <laughs> passed on that miller light wanted to use cold beverage in like 2009 when we were having a big time after our lemonade record but we they were gonna pay us one hundred fifty thousand dollars. we left that on the table because at that time we felt like we were worth more than that Certainly, I would love to have that offer right now. And then let's see, I got a couple other good ones. I tried to be an actor for a while. Yeah. Right? So I did go to a lot of auditions and read for a lot of things. I read for 8 Mile. The other movie I read for was Rockstar, that Mark Wahlberg movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I actually got a part in the movie, and it required me to go to New Zealand for three months of rehearsal and filming. Yeah. It kind of overlapped on our usual winter tour. Right. So, and it didn't pay a lot and I passed on it. Right. And that probably out of everything was probably would have been the biggest one. Cause at least I would have been hanging with Mark Wahlberg, who was yeah. an amazing artist for three months in New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. And could have opened some other doors. Yeah, man. Lot, lot, left a lot of shit on the table, but it's like you said, it's like even that. There's a lot of shit I didn't leave on the table that I put in my pocket. I was going to say the Coke commercial that I, that uh, you that did. was the that biggest was, thing. Yeah, when when did that happen? Like what year was uh, that? That happened. Um, it must have been around two thousand and and f and five or two thousand right, six right. or something like that. But that was huge. That was that was the most I ever made money off of anything in my whole career. Yeah, and it was cool because Emmett Malloy who. Is Jack Johnson's manager and like an, an amazing filmmaker. He shot it and directed it. So it was like a really cool project and yeah. got to remake the classic Coca Cola thing. What about the connection with Jack Johnson? How did that actually come about? From a surfing buddy of mine from Avalon, New Jersey who's going on to be an amazing photographer named Scott Sowens. Yeah. He 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 was like, "Yo, Gary, um, you know, there's this kid I work with doing these surf films, kid Jack Johnson. He's got this great song Rodeo Clowns. You got to hear this song. He's a big fan. Can I bring him out of the studio?" So, yeah. And that was that. We yeah. jammed and he basically played me like his whole first record and just song after song yeah. these original tunes. There's a real moment like he would play a tune and then I'd be like, wow, I don't, I felt like I don't have anything that's like so pure at this moment, right? When we're sitting together, like he's really influenced by Jimi Hendrix. Right. He, most of his guitar playing is based on like his regular chords, but he's a surprisingly uh, unique and like 
really great. Jack's like a really great guitar player, and his pocket yeah. is like unbelievable. Yeah, I just remember just being kind of blown away. Some point after that, when he he started the label, you signed with them, right? Brushfire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we got dropped like probably a lot of like medium sized acts. I was kind of generation of like people like from my class, like Dave Matthews, Ben Harper, yeah, Michael Franti. What's it? What year did you guys get signed? Uh, two thousand one, I think, or maybe oh, two thousand. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, so like in the early nineties. Yeah. Uh, and the roots to when we all got signed, it was like the labels were so flush with cash and they're just like looking for little things called developing right. artists, right? So they'd be like, what does that mean? Well, that means like you don't have a hit right now, but we think that you could maybe get one eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we yeah. got a lot of money to throw at you until you get that hit. So, you know, like that was all those people were like developing artists. Eventually we developed out of our record deal yeah, in 2001, yeah. Yeah. October after 9-11. Right. That's right when we got dropped. My career had kind of gone, gone along. We were kind of established by then. We just put the Philadelphonic record out, which is a good success, launched Jack. We didn't have our shit together to be like, oh, let's bring Jack into our camp. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we let that go. And then Jack just like hit the, like he basically won the music industry game if it was like a board game right right <laughs> you know <laughs> like he basically wrote their own deal with universal like that was just no one could ever get before or after right right so then yeah he started their label so just kind of worked out well we'll be right back after this short break Was Ben Harper also a part of that scene? And so I, he, I know that he was involved with you guys musically, but I can't remember if he was on his label or... Ben, I think Ben's record and our record and Beck's record and the Roots record and all these... And Dave Matthews' record probably came out the year before. But like our record came out in 94. There's a lot of cool things starting to creep up and... Ben Harper was one of the was one of them, and he was making a name for himself. So, you know, you'd be on tour and you'd be doing interviews, and especially in Europe, have you heard of Ben Harper? Yeah, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> uh, like he was totally making a splash. So by the time I met Ben, was at the parking lot of the Byron Bay Blues Fest, and that was probably like '98. Actually, this actually was earlier. It would have been in '96. It would have been 96. I met him in the parking lot there. And I, I'll never forget. Because um, I had seen him play at Laguna Seca Days. And that day, we went on first. And then Michael Franti went on with Spearhead, right? And then Ben Harper went on. And, dude, I had tripped on acid all night long the night before. Right. And our, our set was probably just a little bit like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. You know? And then... um I don't think I saw Michael, but then I was out in the crowd for Ben's set. And I'm sure a lot of people can attest to like the first time they saw Ben Harper because that was just like, I'll never forget, man. He came out and hit with Voodoo Child and it was like fucking sky opened up and it was like so powerful. And he yeah. played Sexual Healing that day and like all his awesome burn one down, all his great hits. 
I was so blown away, man. Now I wasn't tripping on ass. I was just tripping. Yeah. I was just <laughs> tripping. I was like, I got to say hi to him. But I just basically ran in his dressing room and he was back there like with a, with a, a young woman or whatever. And I just kind of was like, Hey, I just want to just shake your hand. That was unbelievable. And then I ran away. Yeah. So yeah. when I met Ben Harper in the, I, it was just one of those moments I'll never forget. I'm walking in the parking lot. And he's walking out of the hotel. He sees me. He's like, yo, G. And we just like had this big hug. I, I was, he's like, you introduced yourself to me, but you didn't say it was you. He's yeah. like, I'm a huge fan of you and stuff. And I was so blown away, man. So then I went on tour with Ben. So, so Ben said, let's do something together. So I said, all right. So I told my agent, I said, and my manager at times said, Ben Harper wants to do a tour. Right. Well, they they said, all right, we'll we'll just figure out. All right, well, here they offered you to open up for his tour, but the bread's really shitty, and you shouldn't do it. Yeah. And I was like, fuck that. Like, Ben wants me to come out and hang. And so I was like, all right, cool. And then so I got out on tour, and um, Ben was just like super busy, you know, just like what do you? It's like I didn't understand how shit works the long story short is i didn't get to hang at all with ben like we never even i didn't sit in i just felt really weird right right and i was tripping because i was like why did he say he want to like hang and i just didn't understand like right, he's right, busy right. he's doing interviews he's sound checking he's headlining like right right there's no time for that you know and then after that i met jack and ben had this manager named jp and I would tell all these stories by saying, like, we're all, like, I love all these guys, these guys, yeah, yeah. but this is just some real shit that happened. Yeah. And JP just kind of vibed me out, man. Yeah. And um, so I remember I had met Jack, we had recorded a thing. And then now I came to LA and Jack was doing a show at the Mint, right? And it was like a sold out show because he was starting to get a little thing going, right? Right. right. And who was there? jp was there and i was like what the fuck is this motherfucker doing watching jack johnson well he was sniffing around yeah and he ended up signing jack to his enjoy records and they made jack's first record for five thousand dollars in like five days or whatever jp's told me like he was a really big fan of my first record and he used to spin blues music one of our songs before all ben harper's shows he had really kind of like I don't know, intimidated me and put me off. And, you know, he's a, he's an older guy. He's older. And right, I was a right. kid. And I was yeah. also like kind of in myself and like worried all the time. And I just, he just vibed me out. So right, I was like, right. oh, he's here. And then he ended up signing Jack. And then, so of course, he put Ben Harper on Jack's record, but he didn't invite me to be on Jack's record. Right. 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 So that was like another like bum, bummer thing. And then after that, then Jack went on tour, opening up for Ben. So that was another thing. So there was like from the beginning of Jack's career, like he had the tie in with Ben and then the tie in with me. And then under Jack came people like Donovan Frankenreiter. Yeah. And, um, and then actually kind of based loosely, I feel around the curation of that Byron Bay Blues Fest, it kind of did become a scene, which was like Jack Johnson was like the figurehead and then Ben Harper and then me and Donovan and Michael Franti was always kind of on his own thing, but kind of in and out of that. And then you could also maybe say like people like Xavier Rudd and other Australian musicians like John Butler kind of were on the right. Right. Cause, cause Ben Harper's effect on the musicians in Australia 
where he became a huge, huge like pop success. Right. It was unbelievable because he really, after him came people like John Butler and Xavier Rudd because everybody played the lap. No one does that in the US. Right, right. In Australia, it's like a thing because Ben Harper is so huge there. He made it a thing. Wow. So everyone, no one knows what a Weisenborn is in the US, right? But everybody in Australia is like, oh, it's a Weisenborn, you know what I mean? Interesting. Like I said, it's like, it's kind of growing pains with, with, um, over the years and everyone kind of, kind of grows up together out here. You know what I mean? It's like, we all kind of grown up. Now we're all been doing this shit for a long time. So we think about like some of those kind of like tense moments back in the day. And then, and then I think about like, of course, since some of those moments, like, um, where I kind of second guess whether, you know, Ben was like cool with me or whatever. He's come out of his way and special guested on like multiple records of mine right you know right. and and like you know anytime we get to see each other it's just like a huge treat you know yeah yeah the same thing like whenever you and i see each other you know all the people it's just like such a huge treat when we all get to see each other you know yeah I mean? it's interesting because now it's been like decades yeah you know of like yeah. playing festivals together traveling together you and i have gotten to like experience hawaii together a couple times yeah which um and those are you know the time you know for me also i keep going back to this but as i get older i guess quarantine has made me like really reflect on stuff too and been like okay what like the best times I've had haven't necessarily, I mean, sure, I love playing packed, massive shows, but sometimes it's like playing a little gig in Hawaii with you where we get to like kick it and be on the beach and jam in our rooms and like have a couple days, like those experiences. Um, and even just backstage at festivals, hanging with other musicians, Yeah, you know, because obviously, you know, in the early days, there's a lot of competition, but, right. but as you kind of grow into yourself you just like yeah. appreciate those experiences and yeah. those friendships yeah. you know what i mean yeah i'm glad for all those kind of tense moments that I, some of them I, I brought up like because that shit was real shit's yeah. real and it kind of comes back to your point you mentioned way earlier in, in the interview about when you were at berkeley and you were scared yeah it's like that's yeah. part of uh what we do is like being because you get scared like you get yeah. stage fright or you get uh you have self-doubt like or any of the things that like musicians have because we have to be open right we have to be open and so in order to be open we have to expose these different sides of ourselves, which is scary to do yeah and yeah. you have to put yourself out there and and especially if you're like doing a sit-in thing where you don't really know what's going to happen until you get on stage like that it's just like you know and I'm sure everybody out there like has had moments where they sat in and the fucking clouds parted and, you know, the light shone on you. And other times where you like fucking came off the stage, like felt embarrassed or right. just ashamed of yourself. Like, um, you know, I've had all those different times. Oh, you know? I so have I, man. I think like it's, but you have to have that combination in order to appreciate when it's good, I feel like you have to have some yeah. bad. I also think that, like, as again, as you develop, the bottom gets higher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, thank like God. It's not, <laughs> but all, but I think something to remember, and I think this is an issue. It can be an issue in current day is not letting comparison mess with your head. 
You know what I mean? Because right, really okay. there's no other G love that could ever do what you do because of your path and what you've done and how you've developed yourself. You know what I mean? Sure. So it's like trying to come And I think, you know, that's a problem with social media and the internet is so many people look at their Instagram every day, every day and can get deterred by seeing, by being, trying to compare themselves to things that not that are that first of all are sometimes unachievable because a lot of that stuff is is made you know people make themselves look better <laughs> right in right, that right. light yeah. but um, you know I think about that sometimes and it it affects me too it's like I watch other like young guitar players like ripping um, or like I see other singers like singing their ass off and doing these different things and but you can't let you you can't let that deter you you know what I mean like yeah, you can't yeah, yeah. because you're always gonna bring your voice right to it you know what i'm saying yeah Um, yeah i want to bring this to current day because i have a huge congratulations to send to you because you were nominated for a grammy on your last album (laughs) the juice uh, produced by keb mo um and you know you've been in the game for 30 25 30 years now we would literally probably be flying to tour today yeah to start our 29th year of our winter Crazy. tour. <laughs> so yeah. tell me how, so what did it feel like to get the nomination this year? It, it was just so fucking abstract because um, like in the springtime, we got a Bose PA and we got a certified and pre-owed Suburban. <laughs> and we're like, we could, now I could do my show, my acoustic show or even a full band show anywhere. And so we, down in Florida, in um december i had grown my hair out on the quarantine well kelsey my wife has had enough of that shit so yeah. she's like you're getting your fucking haircut today so i'm sitting on my parents have a spot in florida so i'm sitting in the on the back pebbles on there and kelsey's chopping my head with the scissors and then i get a text from my manager who goes you got a grammy nomination and i text back you mean you were eligible to be voted for yeah. And he goes, no, I think you got a nomination. Then people started blowing up my phone. I was like, holy shit. It was unbelievable, man. It was such a dream come true. And it was also super abstract um, to have it happen during this time. Because a year ago, we embarked on our record release tour of The Juice. And this year, we're supposed to go to Australia. Yeah. We're supposed to go to Japan twice. We're supposed to go to Europe twice. We're supposed to go all over the U.S., I was having a big year. I had a big year on the books. We were playing Red Rocks twice. And we were going to make a lot of people happy and make some really good money and get to promote what's a really great record. Yeah. And then it just went to shit. As far as like the record being like us working the record and having a budget. Yeah, you know, it's been months since we're technically working the record. And then all of a sudden, my whole plan for this record, my whole approach to it and wanting to work with Kebmo, uh, he and I, like the f- very first day, he said, what do you want? What are you trying to do here? What's your goal? And I was like, I want to win a Grammy. He's like, I can help you with that. He's right. won like five. Right. So he, and he's been nominated for a lot more. So he has his, like you said earlier about the process, like he's all about process in the studio. And um, so that was just so cool to like put in the work with him to go along with his process and that would have been 
enough. And just to have these new songs that we wrote together to yeah. sing in my repertoire, which yeah. I'm so I'm so attached to, that was enough. And then, so Kev called me. He goes, now, G, I want you to feel really good right now because where you're sitting right now is a huge, huge honor. It's the biggest honor of your career right now to be nominated. It's very prestigious. And you're with a wonderful, amazing group of musicians that have also been nominated, including our good friends, Luther and Cody Dickinson, yeah. the North Mississippi All-Stars. Yeah, yeah. But I don't want you to get your feelings hurt because I got my feelings hurt a lot of times at the Grammys. Yeah. So just be happy for this moment right here because this yeah. might be as far as you go. Yeah, <laughs> so right, right. I was like, that's cool, man. Yeah. I'm so happy, man. Yeah. <laughs> and you recorded that record at Kev Moe's place? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in Nashville. Yeah. And is it different musicians on that one? Like, that's that's all different different rhythm section? It's funny because it's the first record that, even though I've done like a bunch of like solo records over my career, like most of them have Jim and Jeff, or at least Jeff playing on them. Uh, this is the first record and neither one of those Special Sauce Guys is on the record, which is great bragging rights for the tour bus, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was um, kind of, yeah, like, again, like if I'm coming into your studio or I'm coming into Kev's studio or whoever I'm getting to work with as my producer, like I, my whole thing is like, I want to go into your world, into your process. And if that involves using your players, so he has a, a lot of players he works with in Nashville. So, Marcus Finney was the drummer who plays in Kev's band. Uh, this guy, Brian Allen, plays the bass. This guy, Mike Hicks, a wonderful musician, plays all the keys and cool. and also does a, was a leader of the background vocals. And was are you on a label? Is this, was this label, I mean, this, this record was on a label? This was our first independent with um, 30 Tigers and Philadelphonic Records. So this is our first true... Um, release as our finally getting to do a Philadelphonic record and kind of with we've been with Brushfire the last 16 years and kind of like with those guys blessing we were we kind of um, kind of struck struck out on our own this year and yeah it's really cool yeah so it, it was a really special time well know? I will definitely be voting for you my friend and thanks uh, man <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me man I just hope we get to spend some some time together and make some music together every time i'm with you i feel like we're in a beautiful place so yeah you know, hopefully it's hawaii or something like that but um oh, i thought you meant like a beautiful place like musically well that too <laughs> that too but it just so happens that you know i feel like whenever you're go whenever i get a call from you i, I like see tropical uh, okay. visions yeah. in my mind so yeah hopefully i get one of those calls again man yeah so that was like <laughs> eric eric ron artis and i did the uh uh, the, our our side project, the last resort. We oh, only that, play. Oh, that's we right. only we play tropical resorts. I still love that. I still love that. <laughs> the other thing that people might not know about is um, that you produced a Mahali record. Oh yeah, and yeah. and I guessed it on that with you guys. And we did a song called "Strongest of Our Kind." Yeah, which I've been playing with my new band, G Love the Juice, as a staple in our set list. Oh, dope! I didn't even and know that. I got to hear that. It's been version. really cool. So, and then if people want to find more about me, to go on Instagram at Philly G Love Twitter at G Love G Love and Special Sauce on Facebook and Philadelphonic.com right that's all I got <laughs> <laughs> my man alright well send all my right. love to the family alright well hopefully we'll hang soon my friend take care brother peace alright peace I want to thank G Love for being on the show 
Really great to talk with him and hear his story. Before we go, I'm going to play a song that G and I actually wrote together um, back in 2014 that was released on his album Sugar. This one's called Cheating Heart. Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kras. 
This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email krasplus1 at gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time.